yes, you might be in a worse situation than someone else. Cool. But if you're both going for the same thing, it doesn't matter where you're coming from. It doesn't matter that person's five steps ahead of you. Success slash your goals don't care. So just get it done. You know, some people are smart, some people are stronger, some people are weaker, some people are more resilient, some people are more positive, some people are, you know, there's just different things which are just in us, which, which you know, make us all need each other. And this is why I also believe in community, because I just don't believe that we do anything by ourselves. We have strengths and weaknesses, and in our weaknesses, we go and find people to help us. Let me, yeah, let me not ramble on. Let me give you three things that separated what I was, what I was doing. Um, one... Quick one, if you'd like to support us on our journey to a thousand, please do consider subscribing or following this podcast, wherever it is you're listening to this. Thank you. Yo, yo, everybody, and welcome to 1000 Voices, the podcast on the mission to interview 1000 inspirational Black Britons. And today's guest is definitely a very, very inspirational Black Briton. Mark McIver, who's the founder of the most iconic barbering brand in my eyes in the UK, Slider Cuts. This interview, Mark, in a very down-to-earth manner, speaks about the brand, how he was able to grow the brand, the struggles that he's gone through, and above all, how he believes that this brand has been so successful in such a congested industry. Whether you're a barber or entrepreneur or professional or in whichever field you're in, I believe that what Mark talks about in this interview can be transferred to whichever field you're in. So, without further ado, let me not ramble on. This is 1,000 Voices, and here we have Mark McIver. Welcome to 1,000 Voices. Thank you very, very much, Mark, for, for coming to the podcast. How are you doing this morning? I'm good. Thank you for having me on your show. Yes, it's all good. It's all good. For people watching, what you probably don't know is that it's 6 in the morning right now. <laughs> <laughs> are you always up this early? Yes. Yes, I am. Even if I was at home, I would still be up by now. I don't know a day past this time. right okay cool well that's all good then yeah man thanks thanks again um for coming to the podcast very much appreciated um what i like to do where we like to start is with a bit of background like to understand where you've come from so just to begin with can you tell us about your area you grew up in what your upbringing was like okay so i've grown up in different areas um from when i was 10 years old i grew up in camden like gospel oak which is in camden but before that, I moved around a lot. Like I lived in Elscourt, I lived in Neesden, I lived in Kingsbury, I lived in Kilburn. There might be somewhere else which I'm forgetting, but I moved around a lot, loads of different primary schools. But then the main bulk of where it became really steady was when I was 10 years old and I moved to Gospel Oak, which is in Camden. And then I stayed there till I was 26 when I got married. And then I moved in with my wife, which was in Dalston, which is about 10 years ago now. Cool. Right. And what was the area like? Or the areas? You grew up in a few different areas. What were they like? Um, well, I guess Camden is what I remember most because that's, you know, the main part from when I was 10 years old. Before that, it was, you know, I was a child, so you weren't going out by yourself. There was no point I was going out by myself, mm. you know. Um, so you just you just kind of remember what the streets were like and what, <laughs> you know, kind of what the environment yeah. was like. But you never really experienced those areas as like a teenager who was thinking for himself. So, um, but Camden, it was, um, it was, it was different. I had, there were different elements of Camden. Like, you know, there was the racist element at once when I was younger, you know, there was the racist mm. element where, you know, there were kind of like little groups of racist boys, you know, who mm. just, I don't know, just going around wanting to, I don't know, fight black kids. Wow. <laughs> you know, you, you, you had that, yeah, you had those, that element, you know, um, 
um, it was um, it was still it's kind of a, a nice area, like you know, big park, you know, loads of things, youth clubs, loads of things like that going on there as well. So you know, there were just different elements of Camden. You know, um, it wasn't like a horrible experience at all. You know, I enjoyed my my childhood, and as I said before that when I moved in, when I was living at Kilburn, Neeson, and all those different places, you know, um, it was. I guess I can't tell you what the area is like. I can just tell you what the schools were like more so. Yeah. Yeah, you know, because those are the schools I went to. You know, some of the schools I really enjoyed. I know there was one particular school I didn't enjoy. One school I hated, actually, to be honest. <laughs> um, but that's because um, my brother were the only black two black children in the school. Wow! And it was just kind of like, it was, yeah, it was just it was obviously you just you stand out one, <laughs> and two, it was racist. But it's weird because we were about six, maybe seven. I was like six or seven years old, so I, the kids didn't even fully know probably what they were doing. You know what they were saying, and I guess they were just. When I get older, I'm like, oh, we're really scared. They're just hearing it from their parents then, because you know. And some of the things they're just saying, you know, like oh, like um, they thought that my skin was just dirty skin, and you know, you could scrape mm. off the the brown. <laughs> uh, that's not so. You know things like that. You know, <laughs> you know, um, and just kind of like you know, kids didn't want to play with me because I was a black kid and didn't want to be around me. You know, I remember going on a trip in school and it was like, right, this kid had to sit next to me because everyone has to sit next to someone on the bus. And he's just angry just because, you know, he had to sit next to the black kid. <laughs> so, you know, so I can, I can tell you, like, the school experiences, because those were more so my experiences of some of the areas which I lived in. Um, but, as I said, when I got older, you know, that's when I really experienced for myself, like, and I was in Camden. Yeah, that's, that's interesting you, you speak about your, your experience like that, because most people I come across, I mean, people, almost every black person I come across has experienced some form of racism, but it's usually more subtle. It's like microaggressions or something like that. But you've had like very overtly open racist experiences, quite a few, it sounds like, growing up. Do you feel like that? Yeah, um, but I was, I'm 37 now, so, <laughs> you know, in the 90s, it, it, you know, in the 90s when I was a kid, it wasn't like what it was now. Like it wasn't like, it wasn't really an offense for a kid to be racist towards you. You know, it wasn't like they said it was okay, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like looked at, you know, anybody who knows who was kind of like living in the nineties knows that what you could, it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal to people. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. I hear you. And um, in your book here, yeah, we're going to talk more about your book in a bit. Um, but in your book, you talk about your mum being an entrepreneur growing up. So she had a few businesses like oh, what was it, catering and news agents and a few other things that she was doing. Do you feel like her influence growing up has shaped the kind of entrepreneurial character you are now? Yeah, definitely. I think that had a part to play with it. My mum was always hustling. You know, I can't say that she ever fully established herself in a fully successful business. But growing up, seeing that. That affects you subconsciously that you know that feeds you you know so my mom was like you know catering she was you know making planting chips and chinching and selling them to shops you know she was selling you know jewelry probably at one stage you know i don't know if people remember avon you know doing avon mm-hmm. you know um she was just like hustling she was being a carer you know she was just like working every job she could work and you know a lot of these jobs were self-employment jobs you know she owned a shop when I was a kid, you know, a news agent, you know, where she sold, you know, sweets, chocolates. She sold, um, I think she sold other things as well. She sold like, um, I think she used to even sell meat and stuff like that, stockfish and stuff mm. like that. Yeah, yeah. So, so she basically, she was always, always, always hustling. So I think that played a, subconsciously played a big part in my mentality. Right. And 
them times there when you're younger growing up um, living you know with your mum and your siblings do you remember what your early career ambitions were um i think when i was the earliest memory i have of wanting to do something was when i was about seven and my mum had said to me that my granddad owned a rubber factory in nigeria um and I was like, oh yeah, he makes he makes rubber. He owns a factory where he makes rubber and you know he sells the rubber to whoever, which I later on found out, you know, he used to even import like or export, sorry, rubber to even England, I think, where people used to buy it. So I remember just hearing that and I was like, wow, like he owns a factory that makes him money. She said that to me maybe, I don't know, when I was five, when I was six, I can't remember. She said that. But I remember when I was seven years old, we we're having a conversation in the, um, our living room, me and my three brothers and my mom, and we saw it was Arnold Schwarzenegger on TV, and we just, I don't know, we saw something where they said he got paid, I can't remember, millions or something, something along these lines, right, for some film he had done, and we just all started talking about the money he made, and we're like, wow, what would you do if you had this money, what would you do, and everyone was talking, so I can't remember who brought up the conversation, but someone said, what would you do if you had £40,000, you know, and we're kids, obviously, not that £40,000 isn't a lot of money now, but especially in the 90s, there was a lot more then, and um, as a kid as well, it's a lot more, you know, as you get older, you realize that, you know, 40,000 pounds, you know, could go on your deposit for your house now, you know, mm -hmm. or whatever. It's still a lot of money now. Um, but we were just talking and we were like, what would you do with 40,000 pounds? And my brothers were all talking about, you know, different things that buy trainers, computer consoles, all these other things, right? They were just talking. And I remember I said, mm -hmm. oh, I would um, buy a factory you know, to make stuff to sell, you know, basically to make money, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and they all laughed at me because what I was saying, you know, and <laughs> they, I, remember they just, I just remember they just laughed at me because obviously it's like, which seven-year-old kid talks about buying a factory to make stuff and make what? But it's because I heard my mom say that my granddad owned a factory and he made stuff. So for me, it was like, that makes sense, you know? And I guess subconsciously, it's almost like you've used money to now make money. And not just spend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, of course. That's perfect. And with your career, so you started your barbering quite early. Um, I read, I think it was 18 years old, you started your first apprenticeship and you've been in the industry since then. How did you first of all get into it? Actually, yeah, let's talk about that first. How did you get into barbering first of all? I got into barbering, well, I, the first time I cut hair, I was about 13, 14 years old. Then I, you know, started working in a shop when I was 18. I got into barbering literally because one, I had an interest in hair, which I didn't realize till I got older, but I was always looking at people's haircuts, like um, on TV. Like I remember when I was a kid and I was probably about, it was around that same age, around seven years old. And my older brothers and my next door neighbor, you know, um, my older brother's Thomas Phillip, my next door neighbor, um, Shegan, um, shout out Shegan. You know, I ain't seen you since we were that age because we moved. <laughs> you know, if you ever see this, it's me, your old next door neighbor. Um, <laughs> they went to the barbershop, right? And they were talking about going to the barbershop and what haircut they were going to get, right? And I remember hearing them talk about that. And I remember wanting to go with them, you know, um, but I couldn't for whatever reason. And they came back and they were talking about the haircut. I can't remember what haircut they got, but they were talking about the haircut, you know, like touching their hair and talking about what hairstyle they got. And I remember just being envious. And just feeling like I want to go get a haircut. And I remember started saying things like, when I get older and I, you know, go to a barbershop, I'm going to get this haircut. I'm going to get that haircut. And I just remember it was just, it was a really 
pivotal moment for me. I just remember thinking I want to go to the barbershop and get a haircut. So mm. that's my interest was always kind of there. You know, then I'm looking at people on TV and being like, oh, that haircut. I'd love to have that haircut. And then when I was 13, 14 years old, I was still getting haircuts at home. I'd never been to a barbershop still. So I was just like, you know, and shout out Shegan as well, because Shegan's dad actually gave us a haircut one time. Um, and I can't remember what haircut it was, but I just remember my hair feeling neat. And that was my first, I guess, good experience. I've never actually spoken mm-hmm. about that in any interview. <laughs> but that was my first good experience of a father. Because before that, my mum would just cut all my hair off, like bald. And Shegan's dad, my next neighbour, this is when I was living in Kingsbury, um, gave us a haircut. And I can't remember, I just remember it was just neat. And I remember I could tap my hair and it was like, it was just neat. You know, I was like, wow, this is, this is, this feels good. So um, then it was like back to my mum's haircut, all off, all off, all off. <laughs> so one day I got tired of that. I was like, I need a good haircut. So I can't get it from my mum. My older brothers used, used to give me just one levels as well. So I was like, I'm going to try it myself. So I picked up the clippers and cut my own hair and it just went wrong. So I had to cut all my hair off, but then I still didn't have no money to go to the barbershop. So the next haircut, I cut my hair again <laughs> and again and again. And then, you know, I started to get a little, get a little bit better. Then cutting my little cousin who was living with me, then my little brother every now and then, then slowly people in my area started coming to me. And then, you know, a few years later, suddenly I've got this apprenticeship in a barbershop. With the apprenticeship, did you, when you got into that initially, did you ever see that becoming like a proper, like legit career for yourself? Or was it just something that you were just doing at the time? It was something I was doing just because um, I enjoyed cutting hair. But at, at that time, that wasn't my career path. Because when I was in college, because I started at 18 and I was still in college at that time. And I was studying performing arts. So I enjoyed dancing. I enjoyed singing. I enjoyed acting. I enjoyed performing, you know, and even outside of that type of career, you know, I did a bit of youth work in my youth club. Um, so I always kind of had this heart for wanting to help people somehow, whether that was youth work, whether that was counseling, therapy, um, you know, so I always had kind of ideas that maybe I might go into things like social, being a social worker, which I did a foundation course on anyway, later on, um, being a therapist or counselor, you know, which um, I didn't go into, but I did a little bit of that in um, my foundation of social work. I enjoyed photography. I used to take a lot of pictures, so I thought potentially I might go into photography. Um, yeah, so it w- I-, I was doing all of these things around barbering, even when I was cutting hair, like when I was 18, when I was 19, when I was 20, when I was 21, when I was 22, I was studying, I was doing evening courses. I wanted to be, I enjoyed training, so I, I did a personal training course. So I'm a qualified personal trainer from like 12 years ago. Um, so I was doing all these things while I was still cutting hair. But the key thing which I would say was, in everything I was doing, I never, I never not took barbering serious. So even when it wasn't a thing for me, where it's like, oh, I'm, um, I'm going to be a barber. I still took barbering very seriously. So if you didn't know, you think, yeah, I was working like this is my main career. Because I had the thing which I say in my book, which is, you know, whatever you do, do to the best of your ability. Like it doesn't really matter about what the future outcome, is, what, the, what the future outcome will be while you're in it, be in it properly. And I've, you know, even I say it all the time, you know, even in relationships, if you're in a relationship and you're like, kind of like, I don't know where this is going. You know, I don't know if I want to be with her. I don't know what, know if I want to be with him. You're in it at the moment. So, you know, while you're in it, be in it properly. And when you decide to leave, then leave. But I think it's a better mentality to have because you never know what's going to come from it. You might be feeling like you want to leave and you're not putting your heart into it and you're not putting your all into it. And then suddenly it becomes something that you want to do but you've neglected it and you haven't taken it seriously enough. 
So even when I did all these things, it was I was still in a good position because when I was like 23, 24, and I decided actually I think barbering is my career, I didn't have to change anything about what I was doing. I didn't have to be like, okay, now I'm going to start taking it seriously. Okay, now I'm going to, you know, um, work hard. Now I'm going to try to be a good barber because I was doing all of those things anyway. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And with your, so when you've done your apprenticeship um, after that, so what was it like when you first ventured out by yourself and opened your own store? And what challenges did you face when you were trying to open your own store? The challenge is money. You know, um, I guess the scale I was doing this shop on required a lot of money. And not only that, it was also to do with the state of the shop that I took on was like, I'm literally, when I say rat infested, I'm not talking about like, as a just, as just a statement, it was literally rat infested, you know, rats. I remember coming to see the place and seeing a rat run past, you know, um, it was run down like a hole in the, in the roof in the back. So just, it just almost flooded. The whole thing was molded. The whole thing was like, it just needed a lot of money. And then the lease was going for a lot of money. The lease was going for like 60,000 pounds. I had to buy the lease for, and then, you know, the works ended up being over a hundred thousand pounds in the shop, you know? Um, so like, and I didn't have any money. So it wasn't like I, um, I had money, which I had saved up. I had no money. So I had to borrow all of that money, you know? And so finding all of that money was difficult. And then also thinking about the deals of how to pay it back. Um, you know, so that, that was the difficult thing, you know, um, finding the location. So let me go back one step. Finding the right location was the difficult thing. And then after that, it was, you know, finding the money to fit out and buy this location, which was the perfect location for me. You know, um, and, you know, I talk about that in my book a little bit in, um, this, in the chapter about the struggle is real. Where I just talk about, you know, all the challenges, you know, finding the money and all the things that were just happening just to, you know, to open up the shop, which was difficult. Um, the easy part for me, which was my, like my strength, was, you know, marketing the place you know, getting customers in, that was the part which I wasn't struggling with, which a lot of people, it's almost like it's the reverse of a lot of people's situations. A lot of people maybe have the investors or have the money. And to be fair, I had a lot of people that asked to invest, but I took no investment. So it could have been easier if I would have taken investment, but I just knew that it wasn't worth it because I had everything else down. I felt, you know, I knew how to run the business. I knew how to market it. I knew how to, I could get, I could get the barbers. I could, you know, get the customers. So I thought someone's just going to put money into it, literally, just to help me open it. And I guess kind of thought money's not enough to take investment. So it's better for me to struggle and to take high interest loans. You know, I, I sold my house as well at the time for this place as well. So, you know, the flat, not house, the flat, the flat um, I had, I sold it during the process to um, help pay for things. But I just kind of thought that if this goes well, and once I open up the shop, the value of slider cuts is going to go up. So I just thought, hold out, don't take any investment. Because I said, as soon as those doors open, you know, that investment of that, let's say that 1% of your business that was worth, I'm just making up a figure, let's say that was worth a thousand pounds as example, you know, once the shop opens up, that, you know, that thousand pounds, that 1%, 1,000 pounds now goes up to 5,000 pounds. So I was just like, you know, pay high interest loans, you know, sell your house, do whatever, you know, just, you know, get it open. So with your business here, like any other business, there's some business places or business industries they go into where there's, is very well established and there's already a lot of other people in the industry, you know, doing whatever you're doing. And I know I always hear a lot of people that are put off. I don't want to start this. I don't want to start that because there's already too many people doing it. And you've, you've gone into yep. your industry, barbering, 
even you know there's a lot of bars you'll know that but you've gone into you've managed to carve out your own lane and to become very 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 established it's like now slider cuts is like when you think of barbers is one of the first things that comes to your head what did you do or how did you you know differentiate yourself within that marketplace and grow that the way you have grown there's a i'm gonna point let me, yeah let me not ramble on let me give you three things that separated what i was what i was doing um one was i marketed myself well on social media you know i was on it every day i put out my work every day i put out my personality every day you know so people knew my values people knew what i stood for people you know saw my haircuts you know the, the they saw the product and the person behind the product you know so that was one major thing you know just how i was putting myself out there um two was that i focused heavily on the product that I was selling, you know, or part of the product, should I say, which was the haircuts. Like I focused on being a good barber, you know, and, you know, improving and putting out quality haircuts and giving, you know, people quality haircuts, you know, so whether I was on Instagram or not, I was always focused on being a good barber. So the people that came to my chair, you know, were happy with that haircut. So before Instagram, before social media and things like that, I was still a busy barber. I still had good word of mouth, you know, um, people were still talking about me, you know, I'm not talking about like people in America, or whatever it is. I'm talking about, you know, just in the local area, you know, people would come, they want to get a haircut from me. I was busy. I had, you know, queues of like, you know, you come to the shop, it's like 10 people are waiting for me for the whole day. Just kind of like my queue hasn't gone lower than eight people, you know, in <laughs> waiting, you know? Um, so yeah, the product that, and the third thing I'm going to say is, is when it comes to the shop, you know, side of cuts, the shop itself, the barbershop is, um, I wasn't arrogant to believe that just because I have a name at the time that I could just open up anywhere and business was going to be great, which a lot of people told me. Loads of people said to me, oh, you got a good name. You, you can open up anywhere. People will come and follow you, right? You know, people come to you. I remember looking at places that people like, I was like, this hasn't got any parking outside. They said, yeah, but if, you know, people will, you know, because they want to cut with you, they'll make it work. And I wasn't arrogant enough arrogant enough to believe that you know well yeah i'm the man you know it doesn't matter yeah yeah i'll, I'll go anywhere you you just come and follow me and i was like no i am a servant i serve people as soon as you forget that that's when the start of the fall happens because if i start making people try to serve me when i'm offering the service to you that's where the flop happens so if I said, you know, it doesn't matter, I'm the man, come and find me. You know, you're lucky and privileged to be getting a haircut with me. So I'll go anywhere, you know, they're, they're going to follow. That's where, you know, that's where, you know, you flop. And for me, it's kind of like, no. I said, we need to have parking outside. We need to have good transport links. You know, thinking about people from north, east, south, west, of how they can make it, how they can get here. Is it easy to get there? Um, it has to be a good space. I was thinking about all these, I was thinking about where is, is the right location? And then also... I said to myself, where is an area that, you know, because I knew that our seven mainly black people, we cut still white people, Asian people, everyone, but I knew, you know, I'm, I'm a specialist in Afro hair. So I said, where is an area that has a lot of black people in it, but doesn't have a barbershop? And I looked for that so that no matter what happened, even if you lost all your customers, no matter what happened, I just knew. And also it wasn't about me. It's about, I'm going to be employing barbers. Where's an area that needs a barbershop? So you know, I looked at things like the census. 
you know, I came when I came to Shoreditch, I was like, you know, this is surrounded by black areas, even on this street, you know, you know, the flats across the road behind the shop, you know, Hackney Central, um, Dalston, um, Islington has, you know, has, has a black community, um, just all around. And I was like, I looked at this particular location, I said, there isn't a barbershop within a mile radius, black barbershop within a mile radius of here. But there are there are communities around this area that can walk to this location. So I was like, this is the perfect location because forget anything social media, all the things there that people were telling me, this area needs a barbershop. So I put I found put a barbershop in here. And then we got loads of people which are just local who just walk in because it's kind of like they live across the road or they live two minutes down the road. They live behind the shop. They live five minutes walk from the shop. So I, I found the right location, you know, that, you know, needed a barbershop. And, you know, so when people are kind of like, they're moving into an industry and they're saying, you know, which people did, people told me as well, you should go to, um, like, I was thinking about Dawson at one stage and people were kind of like, you know, yeah, you can go there. And I was like, but there's loads of barbershops there. They don't need another barbershop. And people said to me, but there's no side of cuts there. And I remember people saying this to me, not one person, more than one person were like, you know, um, but all that happened is they'll close down. You know, if you move in there, because you've got a bigger name, they're the one who's going to close down. And I was like, but why do I want to shut down a business? Because <clears throat> people are kind of like, you know, yeah, what, what does it matter? I was like, why do I want to shut down a business? Even if I go in there and I take over, why is that a good thing? Why move into an area that doesn't need you? You know, someone might say, oh, they need a better barbershop. That's what someone might say, but it's like, but they don't need a barbershop. <laughs> mm. So I found a location needed a barbershop instead and those were the things you could say that separated me to make me kind of like established in this industry because i was thinking like a business and not thinking like an arrogant guy that thinks he's the man you know and thinks that you know um people although people might feel that sometimes they need a barber <laughs> or i like, feel like people need you right <laughs> i took up which is a servant mindset of like how do i serve people and what do people need and where do people need me? That's really good. You know, it's quite interesting because I was listening to something recently. I can't remember, like a podcast. I can't remember what one it was. Um, but what they were talking about was the value that you, the money that you make or the value that you receive is in direct correlation to the service that you give. So it's very interesting when you put it like that. It's like you're you're serving your people. You're giving them a service. And with that, you've got to have pride in your work and do everything like you talk about earlier to the best of your ability. And on that, so you, you come across as someone that has... A very a strong mindset you talk about mindset quite a bit in your book as well and i've read about some of your difficult times like i know when you first started <laughs> for example uh in when you're doing the apprenticeship and you're going to the shop and then like you didn't have no clients <laughs> and you're doing other stuff on the side and you're there all day you're not cutting anybody yep. you know in an environment like that it's easy to just say you know what like forget it <laughs> i'm gonna go do something else instead or like when you were trying to raise to open the shop, it's not small money. You're talking six figures. You're needing to, to get this shop. And then it took yeah, a long yeah, time. Yeah. Like, for, it was, what was it I read? Like, um, was it like two years or something? It took a long time, basically, to get everything done. These are not, not small, insignificant things. They're long and difficult things. And they're just two examples yes. that I know about. How do you find it within yourself in those times to just keep going? I think I've got, um, I've got drive. That's a strength of my character. I've got drive and, you know, I've just got drive. So that's, that's a strong part. You know, we all have strengths and weaknesses of our character, you know, and it's good. It's a good thing to make sure you know what those strengths and weaknesses are. One of my strengths is, is that I'm driven. And, you know, when I'm kind of like in my head, 
I logically know I can't do everything. So I'm not one of these people, you know, I can do anything. You know, I can't do everything. I logically know that. But you see, when I'm going for something, I believe I can do it, which is the strength, which means you'll keep going until, you know, until, you know, the world stops and it literally stops in front of your face and it's like, you can't do it. And that's a strength of mine. So it's kind of like, when I go into a project, I'm looking at everything I can do. I'm like, okay, cool. You know, um, I got to open up this shop. So I exhaust every resource there is, you know, because I've always had this thing where if I was to fail at something, I don't particularly mind failing if I've done everything I could because then I know it's out of my hands and because, in, um, because, um, and because I believe in God. So I'm like, actually, I can only do what I can do, right? So that's about it. If I've done everything I could do, then what more is there? It's out of my hands. It's come, I'm almost like, you know, your hands, got, you didn't obviously want that to happen. But, you know, the, the, it just wasn't for me. It's just an example. Right now, I'll give an example, you know. So I'm not a believer, Mr. You can do anything. I think you can do everything to the best of your ability, but you can't do anything. You know, we, we are all built differently. We all have strengths and we all have weaknesses. So you can't do anything. You can only be the best version of you. But, you know, that best version of you might not be better than someone else. So I'm not Mr. Kind of like suddenly, you know, make people believe. Right. The reality is this, you know, I'm not going to beat you saying bolt in a race. You know, am I upset by that? No. <laughs> but if I go and race Usain Bolt and I, um, and, I, and I eat right, I train right, and I do everything I can, and I put maximum effort into, into that race, and I lose, then fair juice. I've done everything I could. He was just better. He's just faster than me. You know, I, I'm not going to be upset by that because there's going to be things which I'm better, better than him at, like cutting hair. You know, so I think it's a good thing, especially for people just to understand that as well. You know, because as I said, the strength, just understand you can only do what you can do. And we can't do everything and we cannot be the best at everything. You know, we don't, you know, and that's where what you call it, you can cause yourself depression and things like that, where you start putting all this pressure on yourself, making yourself believe that you should be the best at everything and you should be good at everything, which is just not life. You know, some people are smart, some people are stronger, some people are weaker, some people are more resilient, some people are more positive, some people, are, you know, there's just different things which are just in us, which collect, which, you know, make us all need each other. And this is why I also believe in community, because I just don't believe that we do anything by ourselves. We have strengths and weaknesses, and in our weaknesses, we go and find people to help us. That's and great. that's why I've got a team, because I can't do it all. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And on that, let's talk about the community work that you do as well. So with um, slider cuts, you, you lot are doing quite quite a few things for the community. You've got your apprenticeship programs, your runners, your shadowing courses, yeah. you know, to name yeah. a few. Doing quite a few things uh, for the community. Um, what's the what was the motivation behind starting up all of these different programs and doing that sort of work? The motivation was when I was a kid, just thinking what I um, would have liked, and because I, I grew up in like a poor household, I was always looking for opportunities. So you know, I was always at like the youth clubs. I was always at like any scheme that was going on in my area or local youth club or whatever it was. So. Just knowing how I grew up, I was kind of like, I want to be able to help other people, you know, that have grown up in similar situations. And coming to this place now, um, I'm starting to see a different demographic of people which have grown up with more, and I don't say this in a, even a negative way, but I've just grown up with more privilege. But to make it clear, I don't say that, you know, privilege has now become this derogatory word where it's almost like it's a bad thing that you grew up in privilege when it's actually a good thing, you know? So that's why I don't, I don't say it derogatory, like in the sense of like, you were privileged. If you were privileged, then your parents done something right. You know, 
God willing, my children will be privileged because that's the aim to be privileged, right? Yeah. You know, that you put, you set up your children and they, you know, I, I hear people now, they say things like, you know, oh, they're just privileged. And they say it like it's like a flippant, like as if it's something bad. And it's kind of like, you know, don't sit in your kind of like, let's say lack of privilege and act like that's the place we're supposed to be. Or, you know, like it, like it's a better position or like kind of like it's, it's, it's better or like, you know, it's bad that they grow up in privilege because ultimately we want our children to grow up that way. So that's why I'm making it clear. I, I'm not. I'm not on that side of things where it's kind of like they're privileged. They're privileged. That's what you want. But growing up in a place where I never had that much privilege, you know, I know the struggles of it. So I want to help other people, you know, have a bit of privilege in a sense. You know, I want to help those people which are in those situations, like like me, or in, or even worse. I'm not saying I grew up in a worse situation. I you know I grew up in a poor household, but then I know people who grew up in places where both their parents were drug addicts. You know, they were both, you know, whether on crack or, you know, heroin or whatever. You know, they didn't, they didn't get raised. You know, they grew up in a house where they were on the streets from young. So there's people even in worse situations. But I just look at kids and I'm now just like, rah. If there were older people, especially in the community, that were offering, who that could, there were older people in the community who could have offered things and they didn't realise it. Like in a local barbershop could literally just hire a couple of kids and keep them off the streets on the weekends and give them a bit of money, which isn't going to affect you uh, massively, but it's going to help that kid a lot. And I would have jumped on something like that, you know, um, the youth clubs, which I did have, which is something which is which is one of the saving things, saving things in my life. Being able to go to a youth club three days a week, you know, in the evenings and just, you know, play table tennis, play pool, play computer, you know, play football, you know, whatever they whatever things they had. And, you know, every now and then they take you on trips or going Chesiton with a, with a youth group and stuff like that. So those things there, knowing how much that helped me and knowing that if those things weren't there, having no money, um, having no events to put myself in, in a sense, what what would I have done? I've just been hanging around on the streets, you know, um, doing nothing. And, you know, what they say, the devil makes work for idle hands. So I just know it's very important to occupy people's times and also at the same time, put, try and put some money in their pocket. So that's where the heart comes from, just knowing what I've grown up around, what I've, what, you know, how I've grown up, people around me have grown up, seeing kids who come in here, and I just got, I've just got a heart for it. And I guess from young, I always had that heart as to why I wanted to be a youth worker when I was a kid, as to why I wanted to do counselling or therapy, you know, as to why I wanted to be a social worker. So these were all the things that came from kind of like, like that, because that's where my heart was. Yeah, and talking about helping people, um, your book. So who do you say you, you wrote the book for? And how's the reception been since being released? the book was written for young people it wasn't um older people can read it as well so it's not like old if, you, if you're older you know older than 25 you can't read it but the way it's written um it's written for young people it was young working class people but i can't say like a blanket statement like every single working class person because you can be working class and still have parents who are kind of like who are educated and know what they're doing. So it's almost written like for a certain sect. It was almost like people that are coming to situations like me. So as an example, my situation is my mum moved to this country. My mum in Nigeria is not working class, you know, but you know, she comes to this country and suddenly, you know, you drop down a class, right? My mum is well educated, right? But she's not educated in this country. So when she moved to this country and she opened up a shop when she was um, younger, part of the things, that made that shop fail was one, she never had insurance. But in Nigeria, where she's coming from, you didn't have insurance back then. 
it's just not something it's not something they do in that in that culture just kind of like you know you open up somewhere um it was just it just it's just different ways this this country worked right so when her her storage house got robbed and it took everything we got put in a situation where suddenly she couldn't afford to pay for things now and she had no insurance she couldn't get the money back all the alcohol all the crisps all the chocolates all the sweets all the everything she was selling basically got stolen right and then you have to kind of as they say you know where do you find the money to buy more stock if you can't buy more stock you can't make more money so you put in a situation so long and short of it my mom shot um shut down but then so my mom as much as she's a hustler was coming into an environment that she didn't understand i've been brought up in this environment right now so i understand this country better than my mom who's been in the country longer than me because you know i was born here right she was here before i was born but i was i was i was birthed in this country so i started realizing that we have parents that can't teach us properly because they moved to this country it's just like if i move to china right now as much as i think i'm a business person right now that all changes when i go to china the culture is different the way they do things are different their policies are all different so my children who would be born there would understand the country better than me so growing up in that type of environment right and seeing people who are running businesses and they don't know what they're doing like so example um i moved to dawson about 10 years ago or just over 10 just over 10 years ago and one of the things i noticed was every couple months an african caribbean um business was shutting down because everyone's talking about gentrification right so this is actually where the book actually kind of started you know when you, know, you could say when the minds the uh, thoughts around it started all these businesses kept on closing down and i didn't understand why and everyone's saying gentrification gentrification but i was looking at things that these, that these businesses were doing and i was like hold up you haven't even tried to do this or do that or do this or do that it's just kind of like you're just shutting down and people are saying you know yeah you know the rent's going up the business rates are going up and i understood all those things there but i was kind of like but you know why have you not tried to maybe up your prices and, you know and people say things like you know um i guess you know there's always the same thing you know nobody wants to pay more but then i'm like but if your business is going to close down anyway then why don't you just try and up your prices you might be surprised and if it doesn't work you were going to shut down anyway what does it matter or why don't you try some promotions two for one buy one get one free why don't you do some flyering in the area hold up you haven't even got a website how come you haven't got a website hold up you're not on social media why are you not on social media so i'm thinking about all of these things right that these businesses could do to stay open it doesn't mean that they were all going to work right but my i just felt that people went down without fighting and people went down also because they didn't understand business because a lot of these people were the older generation right which come to this country so now these older generation are teaching the younger generation who are actually born in this country right <laughs> like like me you know and like some of my peers right and they're just teaching them incorrectly and i was listening to people who i knew like peers and telling me things that their parents had told them and and it's just kind of like i'm looking at things that's not correct so shaping up culture came because i was like there were a bunch of things that people are doing wrong right there are businesses that, that, are, that are failing that don't need to fail because they're just not educated they might not be educated in the way that this country runs right little things like you know insuring your stuff so that if something like that happens you're insured so everything gets stolen no problem you paid insurance every month so now you can get it, your re- you can get your stock back right you know and just things like that so shape up culture was kind of birthed from that way it was to help people it was to help people um like me where i'm coming from it was to help businesses people with your older generation as well um who in a sense no i'm lying it wasn't directly to help the old generation it was to help basically the younger people which were coming up right which were being taught wrong 
you know, and that's why I call it almost like the five first steps of business, because the five first steps of business in business books are never spoken about. And the reason why they're never spoken about in business books is because the assumption is always made that people know. And this comes from when you're someone who maybe comes from a business background, like, so as an example, my son now, you know, God willing, my business keeps thriving and keeps working out, right? So my two children now, because of the things they hear me talk about, they will already subconsciously know the first five steps of business because they've grown up in an environment where they've heard me talking about it all the time. And we're talking about your ethics. We're talking about um, your honesty um, in yourself. We're talking about, you know, um, how you're always in an interview, you know, so, you know, always carry yourself correctly. We're talking about, you know, if you borrow 50p or so on, you make sure you pay that 50p back, you know, because that's your word. And then we're talking about all these things, right? So even before we even talking about credit, you know, and how to do credit, they're learning already about if you borrow a 50p or someone, you pay that 50p back. You know, doesn't matter whether they need it or not. You pay that back. These are the first five steps of business that a lot of people haven't been taught. My children, God willing, will be taught that subconsciously. So what happens is when they get older, and let's say they decide to write business books, they don't talk about those five, first five steps because those first five steps were never directly taught to them. It, they were taught in an environmental, environmental state, um, sense, in a sense of it was their environment that taught them. But a lot of us haven't been brought up in that environment. So we never learned those steps. So when we're going to start businesses and stuff like that, we've already missed the first steps. It's almost like, well, well like, you know, we're already failing because we're behind. So Shape Not Culture was written because I was just like, you know, there's just so much stuff which we're missing. You know, as I said, you're looking at these businesses suddenly and it's like, we're shutting down. And it's kind of like the logical thing is, okay, well, why don't you try and maybe do some promotions? And then why have they not thought about that? Because they haven't been taught <laughs> that. You know, mm. so that's kind of like where shit culture came. I just kind of, I had a heart for it. I was just like, I wish some of these businesses would have spoke to me. I wish they would have, you know, just, I wish I could have spoken to them. I wish I could have told them little things where they're going wrong. Because I was looking at little things like some of these businesses I'm talking about, you know, they closed down, right? And their rent went up. Yep, all these things went up. But I was like, look at your business though. No offense to them. You have no opening time. You have no, no closing time. Mm. You have no website. So no one could even know that where they contact you. I come to your business, right? You have no phone number on the front. You know, so even when you're closed, I can't even call you. Um, your customer service is not, is not good. Um, you might be a food place as example, right? Um, you have no set menus of even like days sometimes, you know, what days or what food being served. You know, we have to come there and check maybe. I'm just talking about, I'm not talking about one particular business. We're just talking about different things from different businesses, right? And it's like these businesses could have stayed open if they were just running better business. Not all of them. Some of them would still fail. But my thing is, if you do everything, as I always say, you could and you fail, then it's not really a, a failure. The business failed, but you didn't fail because there's nothing more you could have done. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect, man. That's perfect. And last question before we go into some quick fire questions. What do you want your legacy to be? Um, I think that I want my legacy more so to, uh, to be... I guess just lived through my lineage in a sense, you know, um, I guess, you know, loads of us want our name to continue. And if I'm being very honest, I, I don't care that much about my name continuing because I can't, you know, I guess I can't live through my name. I, you know, I'm not living. So whatever the case is, whether my name continues or not, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not there to see it or feel it, you know? So ultimately I want my children to take on the ethics and the, um, that I've taught them. Um, and I want them to continue it and further it and kind of like pass that on through their children. And I think honestly as well, 
I think that, like I say this to my children, because I'm, I'm a Christian, you know, I want my children to grow up that way and I want them to grow to have their own relationship with God. And that's kind of what I want. I'm not trying to have them have, you know, be a connection to God for them. I genuinely want them to have their own, literally their own walk that has nothing to do with me, <laughs> their own relationship and kind of like those ethics. Because a lot of these things like which I do in business, this is where it comes from. It comes from my beliefs. It comes from my relationship with God. So I want them to have that same thing and for them to pass that on as well. So as much as I want people to thrive and I want them to live better and I want them to, you know, eat well and I want them to, you know, to help other people, I kind of like the backbone of where that comes from in my life is my faith. So I want that to continue. Perfect. All right. That's great. Thanks a lot, Mark. All right. So let's go into the quick fire questions. Yeah. <clears throat> it's 10 quick questions, oh. 20 seconds max to answer. Um, but just whatever first comes to your head. All right. And just shout that out. Okay. All right. First question. What's your favorite movie? <laughs> Batman Begins. <laughs> cool. Second one. <laughs> Something that came to my head. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite book? Shaping Up Culture. Of course. <laughs> Third one. Name a song that you can never get bored of. Oh, let it burn and burn, Usher. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Fourth. If you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would you pick? Jollof rice. <laughs> Standard. But you've got, got to give me some stew with that. <laughs> yeah. I come uh, and some protein. Let me let me run some chicken with that as well. <laughs> cool. All right. Next one. How do you start your day? I wake up and um, creep out my room so I don't wake up my wife. You know, brush my teeth, sneak around the house, <laughs> and then I walk into my my children's bedroom and make sure. That they're okay and that they are um they're, they're warm and all that sort of stuff they're then coming to work and I, I know it's gone past 20 seconds and as you heard when we started just before we started the interview i come into the barbershop and i do a morning intro where i'm shouting basically morning insta and that's kind of how i start my day because you were like i switched on the thing and you were like who was talking in the background you heard some shouting in the background <laughs> yeah i didn't realize you had come on yet <laughs> so yeah i do this morning ritual in, in the bar where i'm kind of like morning insta i'm back in the barbershop you know because i have the thing where i say start your day the way you need to go on so force yourself to be happy think about happy things start with energy and try and continue in that same trajectory that's sick all right next one name three people that inspire you three people that inspire me um um my mom her work ethic from growing up, you know, just her, her hustle um, inspired me subconsciously as well. It wasn't even consciously. I just realized as I got older that, you know, all of that hustle, 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 I take from that. Um, two other people that inspire me. Um, wow, that is, that is, I don't know why I've gone, I've gone blank. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Well, we can leave it with just your mum. Huh? I said, we can leave it with just your mum. Yeah. I think I'm just going blank for some strange reason because I'm trying to think about all even the business. Like, to be fair, like, there's some people that inspire me, right? And at different times in my life when they inspire me. So I don't want to leave it like it's just these three people. It's different moments. So even like there's one person that's inspiring me right now. Um, I, can't even, I don't even know her name. But it's, I've been following some of her YouTube um, things and I don't even know her name. But I follow her stuff and um, she's inspiring because... I guess like the way she's running her business. So I, I listen to her vlogs that she does like weekly. And I can't remember her name. I'm subscribed to her channel, but it's just because I saw some stuff she was doing before I watched. I watched, I subscribed. 
you know, then every now and then like from YouTube, I get this thing that pops up, you know, I think I named Millie something, right? <laughs> you know, so at this moment she's inspiring me, but then previously there'll be different people as well at different times, you know, um, you know, like in, in different areas. My wife inspires me, like my wife inspires me because um, of her brains. You know, she speaks like four or five different languages. You know, um, mm. she's education wise, she's just smart. She's an artist. She's like, she's very creative, you know, the way she, the way she sees things. So she's comes into, you know, inspiration for me as well. So, you know, so yeah, it's just different people, you know, at different times, you know, for different reasons as to why they inspire me. Cool. That's all good. Next there'll one. be barbers who inspire me. You know, there'll be barbers who inspire me when I just look at your haircuts. I'm like, oh, that really inspires me. What you're doing really inspires me as well. So it's hard to say three. So yeah, I'd have to have sections. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All good. All right. What's the best advice you've ever received? Um, I'm going to say one of the, I'm going to change the question to one of the best pieces of advice I ever received was someone saying, just get it done. Perfect. All right. Literally. I was doing something, I was doing something and this person, although I was like, you know what, this person doesn't get the situation which I'm in, but he was just like, I'll just, just get it done. I don't think he even knows, but he was just like, just get it done. And it, I, I was like, you know what? You're right. Just get it done. Because ultimately, it doesn't matter what you're going through. You're trying to achieve something. Just get it done. Like, success, I said this to someone yesterday, success doesn't care about your excuses. Like, it literally does not care. Your excuses can be great for you, right? But success, and what I mean by success, is the goal of where you're going to. Does not care as to why you didn't hit here or why you didn't reach here. So it's almost like, just get it done. Yes, you might be in a worse situation than someone else. Cool. But if you're both going for the same thing, it doesn't matter where you're coming from. It doesn't matter that person's five steps ahead of you. Success slash your goals don't care. So just get it done. Do what you need to do to get it done. <laughs> Perfect. All right. If you were to dedicate the rest of your life to one charitable cause, what would you pick? I would say, this is, this is going to be a cop-out, <laughs> you're going to say. I'm not a cop-out, but I would say the church. And the reason why I say the church is because it spreads it out wider. Because, you know, if you dedicate it, and I'm not talking about every single church, like, I'm not going to act like every single church is, you know, is doing stuff or helping out. But there are plenty of good churches out there which are actually helping out things in their community, whether it's, you know, it could be homelessness, could be um, poor people, it could be, you know, um, abuse and all these things there, right? So if I could, you know, dedicate to that, then that opens it up, you know, to a bunch of different branches that a bunch of people get help instead of just saying, you know, I, I donate money to charity and stuff like that, which is nothing to do with the church, right? Just to make it clear. But, you know, that in a way would be, I could help this one cause, you know, let's say Compassion UK. And that could just be helping, you know, poor children in this area. But if I kind of like, you know, dedicate to the church instead, then those branches can help all of these different kind of type of like people instead. All right, perfect. All right, last two. What's the kindest thing somebody has ever done for you? I'll change the question for one, because I don't want to say something and then someone says, I did this for you and you're not remembering that. So let's say <laughs> one of the kindest things um, someone ever has ever done for me would be... Um, what comes to head is someone someone bought me money. Like the people who bought me money randomly, like they're, they're, you know, if you read my book Shape Not Culture, like you look at even like the struggles real. I've had times where people have just helped me. Like I remember one time, literally, two situations. When I was opening up the shop, I was in a barbershop talking about needing money to raise money, and I was just talking about it. 
you know, and this customer literally messaged me later and was kind of like, you know what, I'll buy you £5,000 and pay back whenever you want. Because I don't need it now, not even talking about even the next year, because just keep, just hold it until when you can. Like, because I just, I hear what you're doing, right? That was really kind. That was really, really kind. And there's someone else, right? I was talking to him about how the same thing with the shop. I was just doing the shop. I was like, you know, I'm making cuts to make it happen. And he just said to me, long short, he just said, here's £10,000. And he said to me, pay it back whenever you want. Like he said, you can pay it back in a few years. He goes, just, just, just make sure you do the shop right. And that was, that was really kind. That's perfect. And last one, what's one thing people don't know about you? One thing, I'm, I'm quite open to be honest. So that's hard to figure out, think. One thing people don't know about me is, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm literally, if you came to the bar, you know, I'm actually quite open. I, I talk about all, I talk about <laughs> a lot of the things in my life a lot. I, I'm quite open. So it's hard to think about one thing people don't know about me. It's, it's all good. We can we can come back to that. <laughs> we can <always> <laughs> that I'm, I'm, I'm quite open. Maybe, um, yeah, I, I'm quite open. <laughs> I'm yeah. quite vulnerable online. <laughs> that's, that's all good. That's it. Perfect. I know you've got to run, yeah? Um, but do you have any closing remarks or um, just, and where can people find you as well if they want to look for you? Oh, if you want to look for me, you know, just, I'm online. I'm on social media. I've got a website, slidercuts.com, you know, just slidercuts. If you type in slidercuts, you'll find me on any platform, website, Instagram, YouTube, whatever, slidercuts, and you'll find me. Cool. Perfect. All right. So that's that. Thanks again, Mark. Very, very much appreciate your time this morning. That was 1000 Voices. That was Mark McIver of Slidercuts, and we're out. Okay. And that was Mark McIver. Thank you so much for tuning in once again. It is very, very much appreciated as always. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to this on whichever platform you're listening to this on. And also let us know your thought about this interview, what your key takeaways were from the interview. Leave a comment or a review on whichever platform you're listening to this on and let us know what you thought about this and also what you think about 1000 Voices in general. Next week, as always, we're going to have another very inspirational guest on the podcast, which I cannot wait to release. Like it's a very, very good episode. If you'd like to see some previews from this next week episode, then follow us on our social media platforms, which is at a thousand voices UK, and we'll be posting some clips on our social media channels. The podcast will be out on all major podcasting platforms next week, Tuesday, and the YouTube video will follow later on in the week. So subscribe so you don't miss that out. But that's that for now. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is a thousand voices. That was Mark McIver, and we're out.